Thank you for joining us. We are studying through the book of Romans. We've reached chapter 4. We're calling the series Not Ashamed. And uh, today we're going to try to cover the entire entirety of chapter 4. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's read it as a whole and then we'll break it down and, and, and seek to glean exactly what God would have us uh, in this amazing book. A uh, book of faith, a book of uh, the cornerstone and foundation of our faith. So Romans 4 verse 1 is where we'll begin. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It's not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No unbelief, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right. 25 verses chock full of really good um, truth. If you've ever heard of Evangelism Explosion, also known as EE, <coughs> uh, back um, when I was in seminary, the church that Susan and I attended um, used EE as a means to sharing the good news of Christ with those that didn't know Jesus, that had never responded to the good news. It's the same good news that Paul says in chapter 1 that he is not ashamed of, the, the basis of our series. We're not ashamed. What are we not ashamed of? We're not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, um, the opening question in Evangelism Explosion, when you want to lead somebody to Christ, they, they give you this, uh, this lead-in. And here it is. You ask the individual, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? Now, that's a great question. That, that, that is a, a question that, that should make any individual kind of dig deep down. What, what would you say to God were you to stand before him tonight? Um, I would encourage you to ponder that question in a very personal way. How would you answer? How would you answer the Lord? Now, if you are a Led Zeppelin fan, you might say, well, by climbing a stairway to heaven. Or perhaps an 80 music fan, you'd respond, heaven is a place on earth. Or if you're a Hank Jr. fan, maybe your attitude would be, well, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. The truth is, when standing before the holy maker of all things, um, the response will be personal. Your response will be personal. It won't be flippant. And it will be incredibly revealing. Why should God save you? Why should he save me? What have you been trusting in? What are you trusting in even this very moment? Well, Romans 4 answers the question of how is a person delivered by God? And as we just stated, after, after making the point that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, he then immediately begins to flesh out 
the points of the bad news, that all people are guilty before God um, due to our rejection of him and our unrighteous standing before him. And Paul, Paul explains that this is true for both the Jew who might be trusting in the law and, and their adherence to the law to save him. And maybe, maybe that's the way um, a Jewish individual would, would respond to that question. Or at least in their heart, they would stand before God. And when he asked, why should he let you into his heaven? A Jew might say, because I've, I've obeyed your law. We've talked about um, a rich young man who approached Jesus. And that was his answer to, Je- to Jesus' question of, have you obeyed the commandments? Absolutely, I've adhered to all of them. Paul goes on to explain it was, but uh, the, the fact that we have transgressed against God, that we have traded in uh, our understanding for who he is, for a worship of what he has created, we have suppressed the truth about God, and it has turned to our own unrighteousness, is true for Jew and non-Jew alike. However, as we saw last time, in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul pivots to the good news, where he writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, And he goes on to say, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then moving down to verse 24, he writes, who are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So Paul very clearly states that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, as he does at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul anticipates some pushback from his readers, right? Primarily and maybe um, particularly amongst those members of the church in Rome that were Jews. They are Jewish Christians. They, They were raised in Judaism, steeped in Judaism. Now they responded to the gospel, the good news that salvation is by, is through faith in Christ and Christ alone. It's not by adhering to the law, but... As perhaps, we, as perhaps as was the case in the, the book of Hebrews, <coughs> these Jewish believers are, 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 are very likely get in, getting inundated by their Jewish friends. You know, trying to drag them back into a belief by, uh, of salvation by works, through obeying and keeping the law. And so, as he realizes that's a, that's, a, that's a question that's going to be more than likely raised, Paul launches into what I would call a technicolor picture of salvation by faith being God's way of saving all along. In other words, the idea that an individual is 
is made right before God and saved by God through faith alone was not a new idea. He states this in, in, at the end of verse 21 in chapter 3 when he says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. To what? To the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, the Old Testament law certainly spoke of a Messiah. And while the Jews may not have known and would not have known that Messiah was to be Jesus of Nazareth, um, Paul's point is that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scripture, points to the fact that God's method of saving is through faith alone. It always, it always has been. And so what he does is he uses Judaism's greatest figure as his primary example. And who is that? It's Abraham. It's Abraham. So let's break down what it means to be made right with God, to be delivered by God. Okay? So first of all, Paul explains salvation by faith. We might call this salvation explained. Salvation explained. Um, now, I just referenced the end of verse 21 that the law and the prophets bear witness to a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness of God through faith. But you can guess that some Jewish eyebrows would have been raised here. And we see that salvation by grace through faith was, always has been, God's way of making fallen, lost, sinful men and women righteous, his own, not guilty, right? And so in using Abraham, he shows how the father of the Jews was saved. And if the assumption in, in, in the Jewish mind was, well, he was saved by works, and maybe that's an assumption if, if you would consider yourself a Christian. I know uh, many Christians believe that God's method of, sa of saving people in the Old Testament was through works, was through keeping the law. And maybe you're just as surprised as these first century Jewish believers that Paul is writing, part of whom Paul is writing this to, um, but he addresses it immediately right off the bat. Look back at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Paul, I think, is being a little um, sarcastic, maybe being a little tongue-in-cheek here. By saying that if Abraham, listen, if, if, if his salvation, if his justification was by works, let him be a braggart. Let him go around and, 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 and be happy and proud of the fact that he was a good man. He was, he was, he, his goodness <coughs> was enough to present himself before God and made right with God. But Paul can't stomach it for long because he, he immediately writes, 
but not before God. His boast might be before others, other people, but it is not a boast he can make honestly before God. Why? Verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? And here, Paul quotes Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul goes back to Genesis, and he says to these people, what does the Old Testament Scripture say about Abraham? That he believed he, he had faith in God, and God counted that to Abraham as righteousness. Now, I think it's probably a good time just to uh, bring up two words that are really prominent throughout chapter 4 here. One we'll recognize we've encountered before. Both of these words we're gonna, we, are, we will encounter again as we study through, through Romans. Um, but they are like the primary words in Romans 4. The first one is righteousness, okay? Um, the word righteousness, you might recall if you were with us last time, we dug deep into the word justification. Well, the Greek word for justification is the exact same word that English translations uh, of Romans translate righteousness, they are synonymous. They mean the same thing. To be made righteous is to be justified. We said last time that to be justified is to be declared not guilty. <coughs> and that when one in faith trusts Christ and Christ alone as their Savior, then in that instant, God justifies that person. Even though that person is guilty, they are a sinner. Everything Paul writes about in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, about our hopelessness, about the bad news that has condemned all of us, that there is uh, none righteous, no, not one, that uh, no one seeks after God. There's no fear of God in anybody's eyes. But in Christ, in faith in Christ, God credits to our account, just as he did Abraham, righteousness or, same word, justification. We are declared not guilty. All right? It is a, a righteousness or a justification that is, here, here's, a, here's a good, good healthy word to, to understand. It has been, it, it is imputed to your account. When I, in faith, trust Christ alone, God imputes, he places upon you the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect, holy, spotless righteousness of the Lamb of God, is credited to your account, okay? It is imputed to your account. Um, so that's one word, righteous justification. The second word that we find throughout here is the word counted. Um, and some, some translations use the word credited. Those words are synonymous. It's the same word. It's the same Greek word, um, when Abraham believed God in faith, God counted or credited 
to his account that justification, that righteousness that is found in Christ. Okay? Not because Abraham earned it, not because he worked for it, not because he was good enough, but why? Because he believed God, right? He exercised faith in God. Now, let's, let's just be honest here. This cuts against the way most people would answer our opening question. Remember? Why, why should God let you into heaven? Um, most people, and, I, and I'm, as a pastor of a church, I would say many Christians, I, I, I don't know if it would be 50% of churchgoers, I, I think probably so, Maybe, hopefully a little less, would answer, why should God let you into, into his heaven? Oh, I do good things. You know, um, I do good things for God, therefore God gives me good things, including heaven, right? Uh, or I go to church, I'm a member of a church, I've, I've been baptized, uh, I pray. Or how about this one, I'm a proud, red, white, and blue, flag-bearing, waving American. Therefore, surely God will let me in to his heaven. But, but notice the common theme here. It's the theme that Paul is really confronting in Romans, these opening chapters. <coughs> it's the theme of I, right? That I monster, the me monster. I've done this. I do this. I'm good enough. I, I'm involved in ministry. I serve. I go to church. I pray, I have asked Jesus into my life, right? And what it's indicative of is a faith, is a faith, but, but, but it is a faith that is in me, it's in myself, or it's in you, right? I mean, one can have faith in anything. One of the great illustrations of EE, of evangelism explosion, when you go through that program, is you set out a chair, and you say, do you believe that that chair would hold you if you sat into it? And the person normally would say, yes, I believe that. I said, so you have faith that that chair will hold you? And, um, and they go, sure. And they go, what's your faith in? Well, my faith is in the chair. Well, actually, your faith is in your faith that that chair will hold you. You don't have faith in that chair until you place your bottom in that chair. Then you have faith in that chair. You're exercising that faith. And what people the misconstrue is they think just having faith in anything, right? Having faith uh, in the mountains or having faith in, in the oceans or having faith in some other element of the environment or having faith in the church is what it takes. Even one's belief that there is a God, I have faith that there is a God. Well, yeah, that's, a, that's faith, but it's not saving faith. The demons believe in God. And they shudder. Remember Romans 1, God has made it clear. He has revealed himself 
through creation, you can look and see, yeah, there's a God. But does that faith save? No. In fact, all that faith leads to is a faith in the creature rather than the creator. And so I would really encourage you to maybe examine your faith and ask yourself, what do you believe in? What do you exercise your faith? What is the object of your faith? We'll talk about that in a, in a, in a few minutes. Um, notice verse 5 here. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here's, here's man, this, this, this is good. And this is really important. Only God can justify the ungodly. Only God. Uh, it's not that Christians don't do good works, right? I, I don't want you to misunderstand. It might seem like week after week we're looking at Romans and we're saying, don't trust in your good works. Well, that is what we're saying, but what, what we're not saying is don't do good works. There's a, there's a, there's a big difference. The fa- it's, n- it's not that Christians don't do good works. The fact of the matter is, Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that we were created to do good works. But here's the, here's the key. Rather, we no longer do good works as a means of being saved, as a means of being accepted by God, right? My good works will not cause God to justify me, to credit to my account, because I'm not ultimately looking only to him. My eyes, my heart, my soul, my mind, when I'm trusting in my works, is still settled upon me. Some people believe in exercise faith in God and their works, right? You kind of wet it together. But that's not saving, that's not saving faith. When by faith, your only hope is the Lord. Scripture says, then God credits to your account, that, that to your account, that it is in him alone and your account is credited, declared righteous, not guilty. Not because of your righteous deeds, but he has imputed to your account the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus. Okay. Real quickly, I want to look at just a few other areas as, uh, <coughs> as we seek to capture the, the beauty of what, of what God would have us know here in Romans 4. Second thing is uh, salvation experience. I want you to notice salvation experienced. And uh, in, in verse 6, David is just temporarily for just a... Uh, uh, a snippet of time, he's going to point to probably this. If, if Abraham is the father of Judaism and the greatest figure in Judaism, David was certainly the greatest king that the Jews ever experienced. His rule and reign was the highlight, the zenith. 
of, uh, of the Jewish kingdom. And then so in verse 6, he brings David into his discussion and uses his, him as an example. Just as David also speaks to the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And now, what he does is he quotes a psalm of David. It's, it's Psalm 32, written at a time of David's confession and recognition of his sin as he had slept with the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, um, she became pregnant with his child. He has Uriah brought back from the front lines of war and really more than just being an accessory to murder, commits murder. He has him, he has him put it in the front of the line and, and where he knew that he would be killed by the enemy in battle. He's confronted by the prophet Nathan and he is overwhelmed with grief. And uh, if that is indeed the case of Psalm 32, it just, it lends to the, um, I think the, the, the element that Paul is trying to get across. So let's read uh, his quotation. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, we're not going to take a deep, deep dive here because Paul will come back to how does one deal with salvation by grace through faith in Christ, not by works, and how do, how do I deal with my guilt, my past guilt, my present guilt, and my future guilt. And um, we all whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, and you would say, amen, I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works. I cannot boast, right? But you experience that guilt of when you transgress against God, against your Savior, how do you deal with that? And <laughs> invariably, what we, if, we don't, if we don't immerse ourselves in the reality of Scripture, in the truth of Scripture, and the reality of grace through faith, then what we'll find ourselves doing is seeking to be re-justified by works. In other words, while it's good to confess our sin before the Lord, um, we, we confess with the understanding that our sin is forgiven. What Jesus accomplished on the cross, he accomplished once and for all. I have been redeemed. He ends chapter 4 with a statement to that effect. So that... We need to understand David's words here. Blessed are those whose lawless de deeds, i.e. sins, not only his, but yours and mine are forgiven. They are covered.
What are they covered by? Well, David maybe didn't quite get the 100% clear picture, but he understood it was by the shedding of blood. And we know it was by the shedding of the blood of Christ. And because of which, the Lord will not count our sin against us. That is the beauty of the cross. And it is the truth of God's salvation being experienced in real time, in real life. It may not seem fair. It might be a struggle to think, I've got to do something to earn God's forgiveness. But where God wants you to, 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 to live and to land and to come to the realization is that your only hope is Him. <laughs> Just as when I first trusted Him to save me, He and He alone can save my soul. He and He alone, many years later, is the Savior of my soul, the forgiver of my sin, the one that will not count or credit my sin against me. That is the beauty of justification, okay? All right. Next, let's look very briefly at salvation examined because Paul does a deep dive. He comes, he returns to Abraham and... Um, and in the first part of this passage, he examines salvation by faith. And then we're going to end with the fact of what it looks like for salvation by faith to be embraced. So look at verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it accounted to him? Now, Paul realizes <laughs> that a Jew with nominal understanding of Scripture or a Jew with, well, with, with a very well understanding of Scripture may misconstrue Abraham's circumcision with his salvation. But what Paul does is he's just reminding us that God credited salvation to Abraham's account through Abraham's faith before Abraham was circumcised, right? So the argument that, well, God, God saved Abraham because he was circumcised, big time major, that's not the case. That's not the case. The timing of Abraham's salvation, as we examine it, his, Abraham's circumcision came 14 years and two chapters after God credited to his account um, the gift of righteousness, right? Next, he, he addresses the issue of the law. Um, he says in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law, Paul goes on to explain, 
came not 14 years after God's deliverance of Abraham, his justifying him as he counted his faith righteousness, but rather 500 years later, the law didn't, did not come until Moses enters the scene almost 500 years after Abraham. So what, what Paul is doing is one by one knocking down these, uh, these what, you might, what you might call idols. Because remember, an idol is anything that stands in the place of God. Anything that I trust, anything that I count on, anything that I depend upon, anything that I exercise faith in to promote me to God, to earn me acceptance by God, is an idol. And Paul's simply saying here, it's not that circumcision was an idol, but that it can be an idol. It wasn't intended to be an idol. It was tended to be a mark of God's people, the Jews, who entered into a covenant with God. The law was not intended to be an idol, but it can become an idol. If you believe by adhering to the law, it, it, it presents you and recommends you to God accepting and receiving you, then it has become an idol. And we've talked about this for the last several weeks he explains earlier in chapter 3, the law was given for the express purpose of the Jews recognizing, I can never be good enough. Help me, God. I have no other hope and no other source of salvation but you. Okay? So finally, Paul explains what it looks like to embrace this salvation that God gives. Um, look with me, if you would, at verse 17. As it is written, this is, again, he is quoting Genesis, as God says to Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as it had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not, that's Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he, Abraham, considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Now remember, Abraham believed God. <laughs> Abraham believes God at 70, He's told by God at 90 that he will be the father of many nations and that he, it will be through Sarah that this line of, um, of blessing will come, i.e. through Isaac and then through Jacob. At, at age 100, 100 is when Isaac is born. Abraham's 100. Can you imagine what it must have been like for God to make this promise at an age when Abraham knows physically I got no chance, right? It's quite reflective of how God saves when I recognize I got no chance. 
God, my only hope, my only hope is you to save me. I can't earn it. I can't be good enough. Well, Abraham, listen, the good news is not just a one-time declaration of what is good. It is for all of life. It's sustained through the power of the Holy Spirit. The truth of the gospel permeates our lives. It permeated Abraham. Abraham did not just live in faith one time. It was for all these years, he in faith believes, you know what, I'm 95 years old. God's going to give me a son through my wife. <coughs> I'm going to lay with her. I'm going to impregnate my, my, my wife whose womb, by all accounts, is barren. It's, it's dried up. I, I, it's going to happen. I believe you, God. I believe you. There's no other explanation for this to happen. You've told me it's going to happen. I believe you. I believe you. And when you personalize that and you realize that what's going on here is the object of Abraham's faith is not his works. It's not, it's not faith. He doesn't have faith in faith. The object of his faith is God. God has sustained me. God will sustain me. God has saved me. God will save me. God's word has been true. God's word will be true. So that when I get into a place like David got into, a place of great mourning in my sin, repentance for my sin, the issue is not, does God forgive me? God forgives me. Why do I believe that? Because God has been faithful. Because my faith is in the God who redeems. If you look at verse, verse uh, 24 and 25, this really summarizes and kind of launches us in a couple of weeks into Easter. He writes... The words it was counted, um, verse 23, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. That's, they weren't written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, i.e. our righteousness. So I, I, I guess, why don't we just close out the way we begun or the way we began? Let's go back to that question. If you were to pass away tonight when you put your head on your pillow and you were to stand before God and you will stand before God when he calls you, that's going to happen. And he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you trusting in? What are you counting upon? What is your dependence settled on? Is it your works? Is it your good deeds? Is it your religious life? Is it that you're a good person? 
or is it in Christ and Christ alone? Is that where your faith, is he who your faith is anchored in? I pray that it is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these that have stayed with us and are watching. And I just ask God that you would bless. And you would open eyes that maybe are closed. And open hearts that maybe have been shuttered. Lord, that there would be this recognition to not trust in one's own good works and one's self-effort, but to look and to love you enough to depend upon you alone. As you laid our sin upon your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at Calvary 2,000 years ago, and that when when we in faith trust Christ alone, that his sacrifice becomes the sacrifice for my sin. And it is enough because you are enough. Lord, may it be, for we pray in Christ's name, Christ's name, and for your glory. Amen. Well, thank you again for being with us. We're going to close out, as we always do, through song. I hope you'll stay with us. Um, We'll wrap up in a couple of minutes after we sing. May the Lord bless you. I look forward to seeing you next time. Amen.